Let's now turn to the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we'll begin reading at verse 17 and continue to verse 31. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters, and mothers and children and lands with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. I also want to read again the first article of Belgian Confession, Article 1, The Only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, Almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we continue our study of Scripture concerning the attributes of God, as we confess in Article 1. And uh, this evening we're looking at uh, the revelation of our God as Almighty, the Almighty God. We read in verse 27 of uh, Mark chapter 10, the words of our Lord Jesus, who said, With God, or with God, all things are possible. And that certainly is a, a declaration of God's almighty power, for whom nothing is impossible. And in this context, you know that Jesus is assuring the disciples of God's power to save. Uh, Power to save from a condition that is so desperate, so uh, hopeless, so that uh, there is uh, no solution whatsoever apart from God's almighty saving power. Again, we want to note that the knowledge of God is not simply 
academic, theoretical, technical. There is nothing more practical and important uh, than to know God, whom to know is eternal life. It is so practical for the foundation of our faith. It is so practical for the, the way in which we face hardships and trials in our lives. It is so practical when it comes to our, our Christian testimony. I find that in conversation with, with, uh, unbelievers that very quickly I'm in a sense pushed to the limits of my theological, uh, knowledge and ability. Uh, because people ask hard questions and, uh, in a way you might say, well, it's, it's easy sometimes to ask hard questions. It's not so easy to answer them. And, uh, we must never think that mission work or, uh, evangelism is, is just something that anyone can do. Now we're all called to be witnesses and to be ready to give an answer, uh, for the reason of the hope that is in us. But it should never be thought that those who are involved in missions, well, they don't have to be especially, uh, theologically astute because after all, they're dealing with simple people. No, simple people ask very hard questions. Sometimes they ask very hard questions about God and about his power. One of the most popular objections to the existence of God is the idea that, well, if God is all-powerful, how do you explain all the misery, the sin and evil and suffering in this world? Can't God do anything about it? Why doesn't God save everybody if he is all-powerful? And those are questions that uh, demand biblical answers. No, I'm not saying this at all to discourage you from uh, uh, bearing testimony and uh, bearing witness to the truth. And I, I spoke to a man uh, just the other day who was insistent upon me ask, answering questions on his terms, which I could not biblically answer because I would be accepting his assumptions behind the questions that he asked. And he wanted to argue. And at a certain point, I says, my friend, I'm just bearing testimony to the truth. I'm just bearing witness. I hope that you'll come to receive it and believe it humbly. But that's what God calls you to do to believe it, and to argue with God's revelation, that's called unbelief. And uh, we, we should not feel that we have to be able to answer every question in order to bear testimony to the truth. And it's okay to say, you know, I'm really not sure how to answer that, but I'd like to talk to you more about it. But the fact is, we are often very, we are often confronted with very important questions about, about, about God. And the more we know of his word, the more we'll be able to honor and glorify him by by faithful testimony. You know, of course, there are these silly questions that have been raised about the power of God. Is God able to create a rock that's uh, so big that he can't lift it? Right? Those kinds of silly questions. Irreverent questions about God's power. Well, actually, there's a very good answer to those kinds of questions that even children can memorize. And answer. In fact, the, the children's catechism that's based on the Westminster Catechism uh, answers this question about God's power. Can God do all things? And the answer is God can do all his holy will. And that's true. That's an important kind of answer. Yes, God is almighty. He's able to do all that he wills to do. That's an important part of an understanding of how God exercises his infinite power. In fact, we'll consider that as our first point this uh, evening. God can do all his holy will. God does whatever he wants. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this great world power, this king of Babylon, this 
leader was humbled by this almighty God. And he was brought to confess that the Lord's dominion, his rule is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand and say to him, what have you done? God does according to his will. And God always and only ever wants to do what is absolutely wise and righteous and good. And here again, we're uh, confronted with the fact that we may never look at one attribute of God, one characteristic of God's self-revelation in isolation from the others, separated from his unified being. We confess that God is one simple spiritual being. He's not made of, of component parts that might be in conflict with one another in any way. And God's power is never in conflict with his, with his wisdom and love and justice and goodness. God's power is infinite according to his perfect wisdom and goodness and holiness. And that means that there are things that God cannot do, not because he lacks power, but because he is God and God cannot lie. That's actually the language of scripture. Those very words are found in, in, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, this life that we have in Christ is a life that was promised uh, before time begot, began by a God who cannot lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. And yet in his condescending grace and mercy, he swears by an oath, by himself, that he would keep his word. Not as if there's any real question as to whether God would actually ever keep his word. No, but because of our, our weakness, God in his grace goes so far beyond, uh, what is necessary, you might say, or reasonable for him. But for our sake, he assures us of his truth. That's no weakness. The fact that God cannot lie, is that a weakness? Is it a weakness in a man who, who cannot beat his wife? and who cannot abuse his children because the very thought is abhorrent to him. It is so contrary to who he is, what he values and loves, that he could not do it. Because we don't think only in terms of a physical uh, possibility, but we think of a moral possibility. And it would be morally impossible for a man to act contrary to a character that is good. And that's only a, 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 a dim a shallow reflection of God who is infinitely good and wise. The fact that he can never act contrary to his being is not weakness. It's the power of his invincible holiness and greatness as God. God cannot deny himself. That's also the language of Scripture. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. We read that last week, 2 Timothy 2. God cannot will or do contrary to the perfect harmony of all that he is. God is unable to contradict his own word. Has God spoken and shall he not do it? That's unthinkable. God would uh, deny himself were he to compromise his justice for the sake of his mercy. God would contradict himself if he were to sacrifice his holiness to his love. 
as if God's attributes could ever be in some kind of competition with one another, with one triumphing over uh, the other within his own being. It is unthinkable that God would show wrath contrary to his faithfulness, saving purposes. In that sense, it's unthinkable that God would punish sinners for whom Christ has died as a substitute in their place, as if God would punish his own son for the sins of of the wicked and then punish them who trust in his son. That would be a denial of God's justice. And again, this too is the power of his unchanging uh, perfection. And it's in this connection that we affirm that that uh, God could not could not save sinners apart from Christ. And that's not a, a statement that is at all irreverent or uh, limiting God in some way that denies his greatness. Just think of it. Think of how contrary it would be to God's wisdom and goodness for him to bruise his only begotten and beloved son. That's the language of Isaiah 53, right? It pre, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, his son. And it's unthinkable that God would be pleased to bruise his son, to expose him to such humiliation and suffering if salvation could be obtained in any other way. It was necessary, speaking positively then, to provide atonement for sin so that God could forgive sin without compromising his truth and justice. Right? That's, that's the, uh, the language of Romans chapter, uh, three, verse 26, as it speaks of Christ who has made a propitiation for our sins. Such an atoning sacrifice as to appease the wrath of God against us so that God might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. God doesn't compromise his justice by forgiving sinners. He magnified his justice by displaying his wrath against the one who so willingly took our place to endure what we deserved. And yes, he endured that. And that is the bedrock of of, uh, assurance for Christians, that Christ has paid it all. And God will not uh, punish us for the sins that Christ bore on Calvary's tree. God is merciful, we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism. But that doesn't mean that God can just save uh, sinners just by an act of his will, because that would be contrary to his justice. And God is also just. And the sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God requires his punishment, both temporally and eternally. And that is the background for the necessity of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we must also say that it would have been just had God determined to leave all people in their sin and to save none of them. Well, that's a, that's a, a very strong statement, right? But it's very important to, to affirm that on the basis of God's justice. That's very important for our own understanding of how God exercises his power in saving those whom he has chosen unto salvation. God is just in leaving others in their sin and under the condemnation of their sin. Yes, that confronts us with something else about God's power. 
It is exercised according to his holy character. It's also exercised according to his sovereign will and purposes. And they are often far beyond our comprehension and our understanding. And in that sense, you might say that there's a fearful element to God's power as it is experienced sometimes in the lives of God's people. Think of Job. Job felt himself in God's grip. He knew that the sufferings that he endured were not accidental. He knew that they were not simply inflicted upon him by evil powers. He knew that it was God who gave and God who took away. And that he was baffled as he felt himself in God's hand and could not understand why, what purposes. But we know that God had wise and gracious purposes, but they're according to his, his own counsel and purpose. And that, again, is an important part of our answer uh, to those who might quibble about God's power, as if they're the judges of how God must exercise that power. We realize that it is God's own sovereign will and purpose to judge sin according to his own determination and to save sinners according to his grace and mercy. Theologians have said that uh, the the uh, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was of consequent absolute necessity. In other words, it was consequent upon God's determination and will to save some sinners from condemnation. It wasn't absolutely necessary. God was not obligated to save sinners, but God having chosen to show his grace and mercy to save the guilty, upon that, yes, it was necessary for God to honor his own word, his own character, and display his infinite wisdom in our Lord Jesus Christ. With God, all things are possible. God can do, and God does all his holy will. Secondly, God has wonderfully shown his almighty power to us. Belief in God's power is something that, in a sense, is inescapable. Even people that do not have the word of God are confronted by it. They're confronted by it in the creation in which the invisible things of God are clearly seen, even his eternal uh, deity and power, so that they are without excuse for not honoring him. But yet God's power is marvelously, more fully and clearly and savingly revealed in his word. And we believe in his power by faith in what has been revealed of God's mighty acts, of the things that have been displayed as before our minds and eyes in the scripture. Jeremiah chapter 32 refers to the creation of the world in connection with God's almighty power. We read in verse uh, 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And when you consider the way in which God made the heavens and the earth. God spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. God created all things out of nothing by his word in the space of six days. What a tremendous display of God's almighty power. You know that uh, St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, uh, held to the idea that creation was actually instantaneous. And uh, he was mistaken because he was going contrary to the text. But he thought that that would more adequately honor the greatness of God's powers. If everything came into existence 
suddenly, simply by one word. Well, that's contrary to the text, and we must be subject to the text. But there are others who want to deny the account of creation because they're driven by a kind of uh, secular commitment to uh, science and uh, certain presuppositions about how God must carry out his will, and that leads them to other unbiblical views of how God created the world. Certainly the creation confronts all people with the reality of his power. And the fact that God created the world with the appearance of having developed over a long period of time really just displays the order of creation. And it gives clues and it gives teaching about how God governs this world by his providence. Yes, he rules the the developments that we see in creation. Creation displays God's power or the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. That's also cited in our scripture reading. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, all the plagues that God brought upon Egypt, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. There's that same language, creating this imagery of God's might. That's figurative language, right? But the point is that God has manifested his power. And uh, we know that God's power was displayed in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, also as a as a demonstration of redeeming power, delivering Israel. He revealed his justice and he revealed his mercy also there. Or the judgment and restoration of Judah and Jerusalem. Jeremiah cites the siege mounds that surrounded Jerusalem. The Babylonians had come to the city to take it. The city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it. Because of the sword and famine and pestilence, what you have spoken has happened. There you see it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet this city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Jeremiah was commissioned to purchase this field that was his by right of redemption. It belonged to his inheritance. And here he is in prison. And Jerusalem is facing captivity. And he's instructed to purchase a plot of land land that's going to be occupied and taken over by Babylon, well, God is giving him an object lesson also to assure him that, yes, despite the reality of the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity, the time was coming when the land would again be inhabited. And that was a token of God's power, not only to show his justice in judging Jerusalem, but also in restoring them, restoring them to the land. And then you know how that is followed with another description of God's power. Not simply bringing people back into that country, but by creating an inward change in their hearts. Giving them a heart to fear him forever for their good. To put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Oh yes, that's God's saving power of regeneration. Giving new birth. New life to people who otherwise are dead in trespasses and sins. Or think of uh, the great display of God's power in the virgin birth of our Savior. The incarnation of our Lord. In fact, it's described in that way when Mary confronted with the revelation that she was to give birth uh, to the son of David. Here she is, a virgin. And uh, she... Asked, how can these things be, since I do not know a man? 
And uh, you recall uh, the divine answer to that in Luke chapter 1, where uh, it says that uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And then the angel speaks to her about the fact that her cousin, in her old age, in her barrenness, was also to conceive and bear a son. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the crowning display of... uh the work of God and of the Lord Jesus himself who said, I have power to lay it down, referring to his life. I have power to take it up again. And yes, he emerged from the tomb. And that is also a a sure token and in a sense a preview of the resurrection of the dead. That time when those who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth. And our lowly bodies will be uh, conformed to his glorious body according to his almighty power whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Why should it be thought incredible to you, Paul said to Felix, that God should raise the dead? With God, nothing is impossible. See, the entire history of redemption, the history of the world demonstrates God's might. Astounding miracles all controlling providence, fulfilling God's word, all revealed, all held before our eyes and our minds and our memory so that doubtful and distrustful people like you and I might believe and be saved, believe in this God of almighty power. And that leads us to consider thirdly that it is possible for God to save sinners and uh you might think, well, that's a rather strange way of putting it. It is possible for God to save sinners. It sounds rather low-key and uh kind of a negative way of saying things, kind of an uninspiring way of saying things. Well, that's the way Jesus said it. When the disciples uh told them of the difficulty of rich people entering the kingdom of heaven, they were astonished beyond measure. We're told that tri- twice. And the response was that, well, who then could be saved? And Jesus doesn't deny the difficulty. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you completely misunderstood. I don't want you to think that this is some uh, almost impossibility, some great thing. It's No, no, Jesus affirms, yes, with, with man it's impossible, utterly impossible for anyone to be saved with human power or will or ability or goodness or anything of the kind. But with God, all things are possible. God is able to save every kind of sinner. God is able to save a sinner like this rich young ruler that came to Jesus, quite confident in his uh, moral uprightness and his goodness as a lawkeeper. And Jesus doesn't really argue with him on that point, but rather he exposes that deep down, despite his uh, conformity to the commands of God's God, as he thought externally, he had a heart of idolatry. His riches were more important to him than God. And And the Lord Jesus exposed that by calling him to sell his riches and to come follow him, take up his cross, follow Jesus. What a a wonderful invitation, followed by such a great assurance. You'll have treasure in heaven. But he went away sad because he was rich. And he trusted in his riches and trusted in the power of Christ. He didn't think Jesus could deliver what his wealth could. 
But such people who trust in their riches, they can be saved. God is able to take away their confidence in their wealth and in their power as their security and to put it in Christ. That's a miracle. Because by nature, we're all inclined to trust in our stuff and our abilities. But it's possible for God to save rich people. In fact, the most desperate people, people who are enslaved to drugs, to alcohol, to immorality, with all the consequences of that, ruined health, ruined reputation, hopelessness, God is able to save such people, to transform their lives. Such were some of you, Paul says, ever give, after giving a long list of people that, that will not inherit the kingdom of God while they continue in their sins of adultery and fornication and drunkenness and idolatry and covetousness and homosexuality. But such were some of you. Were. But you are washed. You are justified. In the name of the Lord, by the Spirit of God. God is able to save religious formalists and hypocrites. People who go through the motions to keep up their reputation as religious people while they trust in themselves or they, they trust in their church attendance or good acts that they perform, perform. God is able to save them. He's able to expose the shallowness and the hypocrisy of such outward formality to humble their hearts before God, to see all their, their, uh, their riches in Christ. God is able to save old sinners who already spent their lives for themselves without Christ. God is able to save ordinary sinners, decent people who have never or, or rarely committed big shameful acts. God is able to save all kinds of people. God is able to save office bearers. God is able to save uh, ministers of the gospel with all their official sins and failings, right along with their personal sins and failings, as those who are going to receive a stricter judgment. And God is able to save them by his grace. But without almighty power, all these kinds of people are doomed. Without almighty power, we're all doomed. We're all lost. But with God, all things are possible. And with God, believers know that the hardest work has already been done. It's been done by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save. He has already labored for us in his humiliation. He has already suffered for us. He has already obeyed God's law perfectly. He has already done what is impossible for us to do, and that is to render to God the obedience due to his holy name or to pay the consequences for our sins. Christ has already done that. It is his finished work. That is the one and only way that sinners are saved by believing it, renouncing every other trust and confidence and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, that's a miracle of grace. That's the mighty work of God at work, not only in terms of what he accomplished already in Christ, but what he accomplishes in the hearts of people, bringing them to the foot of the cross, trusting in the Lord Jesus. You know that it's a, it's a great sin to doubt, uh, God's, God's power, uh, to save. In Isaiah chapter 50, we read, Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Why is it when the gospel is preached so often, there are lost people who hear that, but they don't answer. They don't respond. 
Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? The fault never lies with God. It lies with unbelief. It lies with those who prefer to follow their own ways than to heed the word of God and live. There is nothing too hard for you. We heard in Jeremiah 32, you show loving kindness to thousands. God calls us all to believe that heartily, confidently, in his power revealed in Christ in the past, and his power to save all who come to him, his power to keep them, his power to do uh, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, because it's also a power that works in us. Amen.